Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in the History of the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm Andrew Graybill, your host for this episode, and I'm a professor of history, as well as a director of the William P. Clement Center for Southwest Studies at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. It's my great pleasure to speak today with Anne Hyde, professor of history at the University of Oklahoma and the editor-in-chief of the Western Historical Quarterly. Anne is the author or editor of five previous books, including Empires, Nations, and Families, A New History of the American West, 1800 to 1860, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2011. It won the Bancroft Prize and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Today, we'll be discussing Anne's latest book, Born of Lakes and Plains, Mixed Descent Peoples and the Making of the American West, published by W.W. Norton in March 2022. Welcome to the podcast, Anne. Thank you. So I've been an avid New Books Network listener for some time now, and it seems that many, perhaps even most episodes, begin with some variation on this question. Can you tell us a bit about your career path to this point and how this project developed from your previous work? Uh, I mean, I've been, I've been a historian of the West, I think, my whole life. I grew up in Reno, Nevada. And I think I got hooked in seventh grade Nevada history class when our basketball coach instructor took us up to see Donner Lake and told us the story of the infamous Donner Party. I was like, wow, this is great. And we, you know, we read primary sources, you know, all those things. So I think, you know, I've been interested in Western history, but also a certain riff on very personal kinds of stories. Um, try to think about, you know, I, I went to Berkeley. I went to Berkeley for graduate school um, and wrote a, you know, dissertation about the travel industry and how Americans learn to make sense of the landscape. So I, I'm deeply, deeply a cultural historian but also really interested in, you know, how much people matter on these landscapes. So that's a piece of it as well. Then, so Empires, Nations, and Families, which is um, the book you just referenced, that I, I got assigned to write. It was part of a six-volume sort of new retelling of the American West. And I thought, wow how am I going to do the whole 19th century? So I got very focused on places and people. So it ended up being forts and the people who lived in forts as, you know, one of the places I started in to figure out this, this space. And while doing the research for that book, I kept finding all these mixed descent people. They were everywhere. They were important to the fur trade business, but they were also, you know, running merchant businesses. They, you know, ran uh, outfits that moved stuff along the overland trails. You know, they just appear everywhere. Um, They start off being mostly white men who marry native or indigenous women. Um, but it lasts so long that it's a much more mixed up story. So I thought, well, I'm just going to take a placeholder here because all these people who are living in these forts come out of this world. So for this project, I really wanted to dig in deep and answer that question. You know, where did these families come from? How important were they to Native people and to the settlement of the West? So that was a question I wanted to answer. The other piece of that well, is, you want me to go ahead, Andy? No, please continue. Please continue. Okay. The, the other piece of that is, you know, thinking about 
Um, and I think this is the itch that I always need to scratch, how race works in American culture and American society. And, you know, watching all the upset um, among tribal governments about who's who, you know, who gets to count as a Native person. And I really thought on untangling this long story about mixed descent families might help in that set of questions, too. Hmm. Fascinating. And I love that uh, that earlier book, which is just, um, and that's an extraordinary series with a couple of new volumes um, uh, soon to drop by Sally Deutsch and Elliot West. What a collection. Um, this might seem like a small point, but it's one I think it's freighted with significance and to which you devote a full page in the front matter. How did you settle on terminology when describing those whom you call, quote, mixed descent peoples who are at the very heart of your story? I know from other conversations that we've had that you wrestled with this question quite a bit over the years. I language is so freighted right now. So, you know, the decision about how to make it clear to readers who you're talking about um, and not really hurt someone by the, you know, choices of language that you use. So, you know, we've struggled with this around, African-American, black, white, you know, all those terms and doing indigenous and native history, you know, presents the same set of problem. Um, the, the terms like mixed blood, half breed, you know, feel like racial slurs to some people. So I was very concerned about not using that term, but it's a, important his term in the historical record. So there are land records with the term half breed in them. There are all kind you know, they're mixed blood, um, treaties. So you see you see this word in the record. So I wanted to honor the historical record, but not hurt anyone in the present. So I was really careful about that. So in a nutshell, can you briefly explain what this extremely ambitious book is about, or maybe to put it in the rather boring scholarly parlance, what's your argument here in Born of Lakes and Plains? Well, in some ways, it's super simple. Um, It's 400 years and these five families So in in a way, the structure determines the argument. So what can we say about how these families tracked through the American past? I think intermarriage, marrying between ethnic groups, language groups, you could talk about it in Native terms about between clans and nations. we might use the term race now, marrying across race, but, you know, it's a complicated thing. But intermarriage was something that people used in North America really since the beginning. So, you know, thinking about that very long history about this strategy that people use to protect themselves. So if you need new neighbors, if you need new allies, new resources, Intermarriage is a way to bring people into the group, the community, the town, the family, uh, and to give them some stake in it. So they become family members, they become parents, they become in-laws. So, you know, intermarriage has a sort of generative power. So I wanted to tell that story and look at it, you know, beginning in the 17th century and carry that through until the early 20th century. Uh, Those relationships you talk about, typically between white men and Native women that produced these mixed descent peoples, began with the fur trade, as I think you just mentioned, which, of course, is one of the most storied and maybe even stereotyped subjects in the history of the West, along with maybe the gold rush mining frontiers or the cattle trade. Um, I'm wondering, how does your treatment of this era for the fur trade period um, depart from or maybe conform to earlier narratives of that subject? I think making it very clear that this really is about a native practice from the beginning. So that, you know, 
people have been trading for furs forever. You know, furs are beautiful. They're warm. They, they protect you from cold winters in the, you know, Northern Plains or on a blustery day in, on the Pacific coast. So, you know, people have been trading furs when the fur trade became big business in the late 17th and early 18th century, it's still in the control of native people. So Europeans can come in and participate in the fur trade, but they still need native people to show them where there were furs, what season was the right time of year to access furs, how to, you know, turn raw furs into something that could be, you know, shipped back to England. So there's a whole lot of native labor involved in all that. And that's one of the places where we see the earliest, you know, big example of intermarriage. So if you are a young European man and you want to get invited back to the village to do some hunting and to make some money for your fur trade company, you have to have a relationship with that group. Um, And it doesn't necessarily have to be marriage, but for a lot of people it was. You needed to have, um, I keep using skin jokes, but you had to have some skin in the game. Um, so I think that's, that's a, you know, important piece of not thinking about the fur trade as something that really began with Anglo-American business folks. So what did marriage mean? You touched on this a little bit in the previous answer, but, um, since marriage is really at the heart of the story, families are at the heart of the story. I'm going to come back to the five families that you, uh, talk about in just a moment, but can you speak a little more specifically about what marriage meant to the men and women and their families, particularly, um, on the, uh, uh, on the indigenous side, since it was almost always marriage between white men and native women. Um, what did marriage mean to the men and women who formed these unions? love you know you talk about a business relationship but how do we think about that i think it's it's a combination of things so so marriage is about connecting clans connecting families um it's about resources so you know one family connects to another to get some more resources so it's it's primarily i don't know not exactly a business relationship but it is it is about resources so it's it's much less permanent than we tend to think of marriage so a group needs some resources from another clan so they'll have some sons marry some daughters from another group a good example of this that you know more people are familiar with is kind of like you know, English or Spanish kings and queens, um, people aren't marrying for love. It's about creating alliances and increasing resources in those big royal families. And marriage was, as I said, not as permanent. Um, It took different forms. So, you know, sometimes there are men who married a lot of women all at once because that was how you had status um, in a tribe. So there's a range of different kinds of marriages, but it's, it's more about creating alliances and resources than it is about the kind of love, companionate marriage that we talk about now. So could that help us understand why um, the process you use is the term you use is turning off their so-called country wives, how this was a, um, a factor that characterized a lot of these relationships beyond just the, the handful that you go into, but more generally, um, that it was possible for these men to leave their wives and their children behind when they moved back east, whether to Canada or the United States, um, and to think about how painful that must have been for the people left behind. So... You know, even if marriage is about resources, it's still, you're living with someone, you've trusted someone, they live, you know, you have children with someone, you trust them, um, you have been, you know, even if it's not love in the way we might think of it in the 21st century, you've shared a household, you've been a, you know, been a team, um, so, you know, that that is painful, but it's, 
it's it's more common than not. So people thought about marriage as, you know, it's, it's serious and it's about relation, you know, sometimes it's about respect and resources. Sometimes it's about love. Some people do stay together, but it is also about a, you know, particular set of circumstances. So if you're a white man who's been a participant in the fur trade and you're going to move back to Montreal or St. Louis or New York, your native wife is no longer as useful. But in native society, there's, there, you know, it's, it's less formal as well. So that if a young couple gets married, you know, however you think about that, um, it's possible to end it. Um, if they don't get along, they might try out another partner. They might take a break. Um, so it's, it's not casual, but it's not like you're locked into this forever. So I think, the, you know, the most unusual kind of marriage would be the completely lifelong heterosexual one partner marriage. So, you know, serial marriages where people marry one person at a time over a lifetime. And, you know, that's pretty common now. So in the book, you build the story around five families living in different parts of what became the American West, from the Great Lakes to the Pacific Northwest to the Southern Plains. Can you tell us a little bit about each one of these families and how you chose them? Because some of them will probably be, if not necessarily household names, at least passingly familiar to uh, some of your readers, others considerably less so. So how did you choose them um, on the sort of first? And then did you discover regional differences from um, across the continent? So, well, let me, let me just go through um, the families I picked and in, in a way, the answer to, you know, why I chose those has to do with records. So y- you need people who appear in the various kinds of records. So, it's, you know, especially Hudson Bay Company or American Fur Trade Company records or Indian Service records So you, you or, the, or the census. So you need, you know, a combination of things to be able to track people through the past. So they have to stay in a certain place for so long. Um, and, and really the answer to that question was sort of answered for me with those, with this research I did before. So I kept finding these people in forts and forts are really important in the fur trade. They're important with overland travel. They're important with um, the army. So there's, you know, there are a lot of forts and this seems to be a place where you see um, these mixed descent families appear. So some, some of the, some of the families I knew about, um, but what I didn't know is sort of how they would take us through the past. So a lot of that was a surprise. So the, the book starts with two Canadian families. One is John Johnston, who marries into an Ojibwe crane clan family. Um, that's been intermarrying with pretty much French um, trappers for you know over a century. So in the late 18th century, this this is kind of a, a marriage that's you know part of a long history of doing this. And because he is a local merchant that ends up in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and she's part of this um, very long tradition of it was Ojibwa families in that area marrying into the trade. And again, it's a way to protect themselves, to have resources, you know, do all the things that I mentioned earlier. Um, this, this family, like many of the others, they had eight children and they were eight very literate children who kept records. And because they're on the Canadian and, U.S. border, once that's formed, they're kind of records on both sides of the border. But this family really is kind of 
fur trade central. They, you know, start in the Great Lakes. They end up moving to the Pacific Northwest. Um, they, you know, circle around Upper Canada. So for all kinds of reasons, they, you know, left a trail of records. Um, one of the daughters in that family married someone who became very famous. I mean, was not famous when they got married. So this is a guy named Henry Schoolcraft, um, who became sort of obsessed with kind of tracking native languages. So he became this kind of salvage historian of native people. And he was also Indian agent for the new territory and then the new state of Michigan. So, you know, he's, he has tons of records and his whole family is you know quite literate too. Um, the woman that he marries, her name is Jane Johnston and she becomes Jane Schoolcraft and she's, she's, she's a poet. She's, she's an essayist. Uh, but she's very much an Ojibwe woman too. So she's, you know, an interesting character. So that, that family really does take us, um, well into the, you know, sort of heart of the 19th century story. Um, the other Canadian family is really much more out there in the fur trade. So, you know, fur trade, again, kind of first rate central, um, a guy named Wadens, um, comes, comes to the new world and he ends up in Canada and he fights, um, he's a Swiss guy and he ends up sort of being stuck after, uh, the American Revolution, the you know, all of that, you know, warfare happens. He's been a hired soldier for the Canadians, and he decides to stay in Canada. And that's a great, that's a very typical story. So once he's in Canada, he marries a woman in Montreal, and he moves out into the Cree world of the fur trade. So he marries a Cree woman. Um, and again, this is in the, you know, 1770s and they have a child who's named Marguerite and, you know, this family is very much part of the sort of warring fur trade world that we see in the late 18th century and early 19th century. So those are the two sort of most Canadian family members. And then sort of the action moves as the fur trade does to the Missouri river. And I have two families there as well. Um, young men who end up in St. Louis and because it's, you know, there's not much other work. They just, they sign up to be engagés in the fur trade. Um, you know, they sign on as kind of lowest kinds of laborers and they literally push, paddle, and drag boats up the Missouri River. Um, and after a season or two of that, so this is a, a young man whose name is Andrew Drips and another young man whose name is Lucien Fontenelle, they decide, well, that was way too much work. Um, what I really want to do is move into a native village and start my own little fur trade business. And I don't want to drag ships, you know, all these boats up and down the river. So Andrew Drips goes to an Oto village and he marries a woman just about in um, 1820, um, whose name is Macompame, and they have four children and become part of the Rocky Mountain fur trade. And Lucienne Fontenelle, um, who's a French speaker and really doesn't speak much English, marries an Omaha woman. And he marries the daughter of an important leader named Big Elk, and her name is Mehubane, and they have a family. And Lucienne and Andrew 
go into business together. And they're part of the sort of high tide of the Rocky Mountain fur trade. They're part of the brigades that travel west, etc. Um, but that family, they stay in, you know, after participating in the fur trade, they stay in that area for a long time. Um, I can track that family, you know, well into the 20th century. Um, and then the final group is a group of people who decide to move to the Southern Plains. So these are Cheyenne people who decide that, you know, it's, they don't want to fight with the Lakota and Dakota anymore. So in the 1810s and 1820s, they strike out for a new place on the Southern Plains. At the same time, a bunch of white men from St. Louis decide to get involved in the bison trade. So there's another sort of set of families that emerge out of that place. And those are the bents. Yes. Yes. Those are the bents. And, um, Bent marries a, a woman named Owl Woman or Miss Danta, and they have. You know, he, mar- he marries three of um, this leader's daughters, so Miss Danta, Island, and Yellow Woman. So Bent is a guy who has three wives, and they together raise a bunch of children. I want to home in a bit on a couple of the families you bring to life, starting with. As I think of them, the Johnston Schoolcrafts, um, I think that uh, they do an especially good job of bringing them to life. And you um, focus uh, especially on Jane Johnston uh, and her husband, Henry Schoolcraft. So I've driven across Schoolcraft County in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, never really gave much thought to for whom it was named. Um, but it's impossible for me now to think about that place the same way, having learned Henry's story, given his ambivalence, maybe we even call it hypocrisy, when it came to his mixed-raced family, which I think is really heartbreaking. What can you tell me about that relationship and maybe what we learn from them, perhaps Henry especially? Well, you know, Henry in some ways is a very, very typical early 19th century guy but also he's 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 talented he's ambitious um so he's not typical in some ways he he ends up sort of on the road from upstate new york um because his he and his father have lost a whole bunch of businesses in kind of the the 1810s and that was a very hard period there are a bunch of you know serious there's a big depression in 1819 so he he goes out of business and he appears like so many other people on the missouri river and his his goal is to his two goals one is to figure out some way to make money from mineral mining so he's a quartz miner and a lead miner but he also knows that what he really needs is a rich and powerful person to help him so he you know publishes stuff about mining and then he starts you know bugging people like the you know secretary of the interior um and he gets appointed to explore the great lakes for its mineral wealth and while he's up there, he runs into the Johnston family. They, they, in fact, stay in the Johnston family house. And Henry realizes that the Indian service will pay a good salary. Americans are really, really interested in Native people and what they mean and, you know, sort of what their history has been. So Henry just sort of... Falls in, you know, falls in love with Jane Schoolcraft, who is a young Ojibwe woman. Um, she speaks a couple of different languages, Ojibwe, French, Latin, and Greek. She writes poetry. Um, so they get married. And they have a, you know, kind of a, a rough relationship. He's, he's really jealous of her in some ways because she is a poet and she speaks native languages and he can't. Um, so it's, it's, it's a little bit complicated and she's so dependent on him in terms, she's, you know, lives in a very, very isolated place. 
Um, he takes her to New York a couple times, but she's miserable because she's kind of put on display as the, you know, fantastic Ojibwa woman. And she hates that. Um, so there, it's a, it's a complicated relationship, but I'm so lucky there because I have, you know, business records, a lot of personal letters between them because he's the superintendent of the Indian service. He travels a lot. So he writes to her a lot and, you know, she writes back to him. So we have, I don't know how many letters aren't there, but we have, you know, thousands of letters between all those family members. And that's pretty unusual. One of the things that's so painful about the Johnston schoolcraft marriage uh, and, you know, its implications for the children born of that relationship is how Henry, as I understand it from the book, basically denies them after Jane's death. And he remarries, uh, or he, he remarries a woman named Mary, who I believe is is white. Um, and she's horrified by his mixed-race children. And I think you tell a story about how she even begins a novel, I'm reading from your book here, entitled The Black Gauntlet, intended to defend the South against Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 Uncle Tom's Cabin. So in other words, sort of Mary, Schoolcraft's second wife, his white wife, um, clearly has uh, very strong feelings about race. And I'm curious what that what those mean um, for her sort of mixed descent stepchildren and how that all plays out. I mean, this is the kind of thing you couldn't make up. Like like this this you know here you know, truth is way stranger than fiction. So Jane Schoolcraft. Um, dies when the when her children are like you know fourteen and sixteen, and Henry is then in charge. So he you know puts them in in boarding schools, um, and then he realizes that he's he's got to find another gig. He's not going to be able to work for the Indian service anymore. There's some complicated politics about all that. But he he really wants to publish this giant, giant six-volume compendium about the history of Native peoples. So he he needs money. And I think he also, he's, you know, he's lonely. Um, and he's had this, you know, very different life. So he, you know, seeks a woman who's got money. So he finds an unmarried Southern belle who's uh, over 30. Um, and she's got a lot of money and they discuss in, you know, letters going back and forth about, you know, what her, what his children look like and what they will mean. And boy, she's like the world's most wicked stepmother. Um, you know, she, she hates them. She's embarrassed by them. Um, and she does, as Henry's working on his great compendium, she does write this book and it gets, she uses Henry's publishing contacts to get it published. And it's, you know, a very thinly veiled description of her failed, as she perceives them, um, mixed descent stepchildren. Um, eventually the, the son, whose name is John Johnston Schoolcraft is killed in the civil war, um, fighting on the union side and Jenny or Jane, um, who's the daughter gets total revenge because she marries this woman's beloved younger brother. So that's like the best punishment of all, but man, what a messed up family. So that really is an extraordinary story um, that uh, that Schoolcraft's daughter marries um, the younger brother of his second wife, who's horrified by the existence of these mixed race children, which when I was reading this reminded me quite a bit of um, Granville Stewart's later career, uh, the famed Montana rancher whom uh, Clyde Milner and Carol O'Connor write about, about basically the burden that he felt having mixed race children at a time when that was no longer acceptable, at least if one wanted entree into sort of polite uh, white society. Um, but you know, I think, I think um, 
we we have to think about that as it's different in different places. So I think it was very possible for people to raise mixed descent families in some places. So if you're in Michigan, if you're in, you know, some, you know, parts of the Pacific Northwest or even a place like Kansas City, it's possible. In Washington DC in the, you know, 1840s and 1850s, it wasn't. So, yeah, it's it it's a little bit luck of the draw, but there, you see families like that in these places. It's common. What do you think accounts for that regional difference? I think much of the East Coast, and then there's been so much scholarship about that, viewed itself as having gotten rid of all of its native people. And of course they hadn't. Um, native people just, you know, turned up. Um, they were careful and they were kind of hiding out until things got better. So there are, you know, lots of native people living in the area around Washington, D.C. or New York City or uh, you know, there are all kinds of examples about that all over New England. There certainly are native people, but they're just they're not part of the economic landscape in, in as visible a way as they are in a place like Michigan or the Missouri River borderlands or the Southern Plains. So I think that makes a difference. Let's talk about the Bents. Speaking of the Southern Plains um, and the Southwest, will probably be the characters most familiar to your readers if they're steeped in Western history, at least. Um, the life of George Bent is particularly painful to consider. But could you tell us a little bit about that family? So this this is a relatively famous St. Louis family, and they send most of their sons into the fur trade in their very first years of the 19th century. And the, the one that I track is one of the middle sons named William. And he accompanies his brother, Charles, on one of the early trips on the um, Santa Fe Trail. And they're going to go to Santa Fe. They're going to, you know, set up a trading business there. And William really decides that he is not interested in the business part of it. But what he wants to do is set up a trading fort and have a more direct relationship with local Southern Cheyenne people. And that's what he does. Um, in, in 1835, he marries the daughter of an important leader named White Thunder and a few, a couple of years later, he takes into his household her younger sisters. So it's not totally clear whose kids are whose in this situation, but there are, you know, five bent children. Um, one of the mothers dies in childbirth right after the Mexican War. But this is this is a big, important trading family. Um, they have. They have wealth and power um, because of their relationship with the Southern Cheyenne. This is one of these moments that Native people have, you know, figured out a way to have a relatively peaceful trade moment. So there's the Great Peace of 1840, and that's kind of the, the moment that the Bent family, it's kind of its shining moment. And it's, it's good for the Cheyenne people as well. Um, and it's, it's, it's complicated because, you know, being in contact with white people being on the overland trails, there is disease, there is drought, there is a loss of access to bison and other kinds of hunting grounds. But this, this, you know, this family and this relationship with the Bents brings people resources that they need at this particular moment. So, you know, that's, that's this family that's really important to this area. And Bent, Bent understands that what he needs to do is make sure that his children can participate in whatever's coming. So he sends them to St. Louis boarding schools. Um, they're all very well educated, uh, and they end up, 
you know, back in Colorado as the Civil War begins. And they're big players in the Sand Creek Massacre. Three, three of the children are at that massacre in various um, moments. Um, and as a result of all that, Native people go um, really decide that the only way to participate in this new world after the Civil War is to have full-out war. Um, any treaty they signed, any peace agreement they'd made had been broken, and Sand Creek was the biggest example of that. So the, the Bent children are part of that decision, too, and they move with the Cheyenne villages and they join up with the war villages. So, you know, it's a, it's, there's a lot of violence out there at that particular moment. Like, you know, every native person in Colorado, um, people are removed to Oklahoma after that. So once the army can step in and control those things, Bent's fort is turned into an army fort. The Bent family is you know, stripped of most of its resources, and they all end up in what's called Indian Territory or Oklahoma today. And there's still Bents here now. Um, it was, a, in some ways, a big, successful family for other reasons. But, you know, George Bent and his brother Robert both married several different women. George Bent had four different wives. Uh, and he sold alcohol, he traded in guns, he made a bunch of terrible land deals. In some ways, he's kind of prototypical, too. So that's that's the family that takes us into the era of sort of the heartbreaking era of removal and allotment and, you know, the debates around blood quantum. All things I want to get to in the time that we've got left. In thinking about George Bent, as you mentioned, a son of William, uh, I guess a nephew of Charles, who was the first territorial governor of New Mexico, and you describe what happens to him in the Taos Revolt of 1847. But George has this particularly kind of, as I think of it, sort of painful and controversial experience in which he um, is in Black Kettle's camp at the time of the Sand Creek Massacre, um, survives. Uh, and then later, um, in the late 19th and certainly into the early 20th century, becomes um, a sort of particularly important figure in interpreting um, Cheyenne history to a variety of comers, among them George Bird Grinnell. I think that this puts him in an awkward relationship um, to his mother's people. Could you say a little bit more about you know, but I, I don't want to oversell it, but what I think of is kind of the tragedy of George Bent. Well, so this this is so so George is born in eighteen forty three. So by the time we get to you know the Southern Plains and the eighteen seventies and the Red River War and you know, all of that stuff, um, he's you know got a bunch of families to support and he is he's you know he's a troubled character he drinks too much he um he 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 leads a hard life in many ways um his wives get sick of him and they kick him out because he's he's not you know he's making bad land deals for the Cheyennes he's become an embarrassment in some ways and, you know, right as all this is happening, um, this is when white scholars get interested for the first time in these sort of remaining people living on the plains. We need to, you know, talk, talk to the last warriors on the plains. And Ben sets himself up as an interpreter. And I think there are two ways to look at this. One would be really he's a sellout. Like he's, you know, selling stories that he shouldn't tell. Um, he's doing all kinds of stuff that, you know, make people furious. But another way to look at it is he's, this is the way he's going to work his way back into the good graces of his people. He's going to listen to what elders have to say. He's going to reintroduce himself. Um, and he ends up working for, 
George Bird Grinnell, who is a famous guy, and he gets irritated with Grinnell because he doesn't pay him enough and that sort of stuff. And he gets, then he gets ha- hooked up with this guy named George Hyde. And, and I really need to say that there's no relation between George Hyde and me. I checked. Um, <laughs> and George Hyde is this, he becomes a quite important historian of um, Plains people. So he's a he's an early early ethno historian. He's not trained. Um, his his method is kind of to interview people and to send letters to people and to ask questions about sort of you know, what Southern Plains warriors did. So you know he he sees his first Indian people at the World's Fair in Omaha. So, you know, he's an interesting character. So he he sends a letter to George and he says, could you tell me more about some battle? And George is sitting around um, thinking, you know, you know, how can I you know, make some money off this? So this is in the early 20th century. So at this point, George is pushing 60. Um, so he, he strikes up a relationship with George Hyde, and they write hundreds of letters to each other um, about all this. And they, they try to publish a sort of retelling of Sand Creek in 1905. And a guy who lives in Colorado Springs runs a little magazine. So they, they you know, shot this around, and he offers to publish it. And then the people who were at Sand Creek who were also in their 60s or 70s, um, the militia guys who participated in it, who are now Denver doctors and lawyers, are furious at this, just absolutely furious. How could someone um, of, with Ben's background, and they call him a half-breed, and they accuse William Bent of having married a squaw, and all, you know, all this awful, awful language in the Denver newspapers right around 1906 and 1907, um, because Bent has dared to tell another version of Sand Creek. So, you know, he's, he's uh, an interesting character. He dies in 1918 from the Spanish flu, and George Hyde, still completely unknown at that point, um, struggles along with this. He uses Ben's notes and Ben's interviews for a lot of his scholarship. Um, And he keeps trying to write Ben's story. And he gets so frustrated at this that sometime in the 1920s, he burns all of Ben's letters. So a few get saved, but they're all kind of... Uh, you know, we have a very incomplete record of that. So, cause he feels like he can't do justice to George's story. Um, and in the end he does publish in the late 1970s, this life of George Bent, which is not really a life of George Bent, but it does appear. It's a really extraordinary story. And I'm sure the historian in you um, sort of cringes at the idea of all those burned letters. Uh, so one thing seems quite clear as we move more deeply into the 19th century, which you describe um, in the early going of your book as, as a, quote, hinge moment. Um, it looks like spaces for mixed descent people contract sharply, both in geographic and cultural terms. How should we understand this trend? In- this, this is a familiar 19th story about, you know, how, how race comes to matter more. So mixed descent people are mixed descent people. They're, they're both, they're both native, they're parts of their tribe, but they also have white families and live partially in that world as well. And, you know, they, they worked as translators, they worked as scouts. So there, there's a, there was a lot of, place for them in the emerging West. They had expertise that people needed. They had languages. And as the 19th century, you know, moves on, and particularly as we get closer to the 1850s, um, the sort of long Indian war, the debates over expansion, puts race at the heart of so many questions that it wasn't before. So increasingly, as the U.S. 
policy begins to think about, oh, we need to figure out who is native and who belongs on reservations and who we need to sign treaties with, where do mixed descent people fit? So increasingly, they have to be on one side of the line or the other. And often they don't get to make that decision. They're categorized by a census taker or by someone in the tribal nation as native. And, you know, they've had a complicated relationship with their tribal nations as well as translators and scouts and, you know, those kinds of jobs. So it's a, it's a, I think it's a rough moment that gets rougher as the 19th century goes on. The, the language in the air um, in reconstruction about, you know, who deserves citizenship, how do we think about Native people, um, is a sort of another big changing moment, I think, for these mixed descent families. And, it's, you know, of course it's true for, you know, anybody who's trying to, you know, cross racial lines in that period. Well, it seems that one solution the government um, enlisted sort of with varying degrees of commitment, were so-called half-breed tracks. Can you describe them and ultimately how and why they appear to have failed? So these these appear, you know, starting in the 1820s. And again, this is this is a measure of how much these mixed descent families mattered and how many there were. So a, a lot of treaties that move Indian land. Um, out of Indian hands, but you know th- these are exchanges. So sometimes you get you give up land in Michigan or in Illinois or in um, Alabama for land someplace else. Well, attached to a lot of those are promises for the you know they use the word mixed blood or half breed members of these tribal nations, and uh, so there's you know. That word half-breed is now in the kind of treaty language, and there are you know, numerous examples of this. I think there are more than 50 of these things that get signed that have some language about mixed blood tracks or half-breed tracks. And these kind of move along with the tribe. So, you know, the idea is this will convince more mixed race people to move with the tribes because they have this particular guarantee of land. Um, There's sort of a racist piece of this too, that somehow mixed blood people will be good models for native people who are learning how to be farmers and ranchers and that sort of stuff. Um, So this, you know, this gets hitched into federal law. The, there are you know, a couple of really good examples of these. The one one of the families that I follow all the way through, the Drips family, who marry into the Oto tribe, um, end up being recognized as owning land on one of these half breed tracks, which is the Nemaha half breed tract, which is now on the kind of Nebraska Kansas border. But they're guaranteed land there. And this is a really common story for these mixed ascent families. But it's also part of that moment where so much native land gets taken away. So mixed blood people, because they're granted their land early, are often in the, you know, difficult, challenging moment of, you know, they have to pay taxes, they have to manage land in different ways, and they lose their land, as many, many people do who aren't Native. So there's just a churn of land ownership all over the Midwest, but they get caught up in that. So it's um, it's interesting that that language shows up in federal law. To loop back to something you mentioned a little earlier, which I think, you know, follows pretty closely on the heels of that previous question. What did the Dawes Allotment Act of 1887 and its aftermath mean for mixed descent peoples? And I'm thinking here not only in terms of property or the loss of property, but also matters such as citizenship, race, blood quantum, so on. 
So, I mean, we could, we could look at a bunch of examples of this. So the, the Dawes Act is in the middle of the 1880s. The reservation system had, you know, really just come online. Uh, the U.S. government had decided to stop signing treaties with Native people because they wanted to have a different relationship. They wanted to move out of the sort of wardship idea. So the notion is there's all this land and Native people just need to divide it up and move on to what were called allotments. So they could be 40 acres or 80 acres or 160 acres. Um, but the idea was let's break up Native res- native reservations and turn those into something that looks more like American farmer's land. So that's a piece of it. But in order to make all this work, you have to figure out who's an Indian who's covered under the Dawes Act rules. So native people of all nations and places have to sign on to what are called the Dawes Rolls. So in order to get citizenship and to get access to land, or we can talk about this in different ways, you have to sign up to be an Indian. So you show up to a a local uh, Indian service office, an agency, a reservation office, And someone there decides how Indian you are. So this is, you know, sort of the most, you know, kind of racist moment in the world as people are categorized as either full-blooded Indian, half-breed, quarter-breed, you know, mostly white. So, you know, these are, you know, people who are just in there doing a job. Um, getting people to sign up and to sign their racial quantum. So how much blood, how much blood quantum do you have? So many people at that point, smartly, decided that the one thing they knew that they shouldn't do is sign anything the U.S. government wants you to sign. So many, many people avoid signing on the Dawes Rolls, um, recognizing that this kind of thing has gotten them into trouble before. So it's it's not like it's an accurate record of any kind, but it's also based on this really false set of racial categories. So, you know, phenotype, the way people look, has very little to do with genotype. So looking at someone doesn't tell you much about how much Indian blood somebody has. So, you know, this very rough racist measure is what gets applied to Native people. So you can look at somebody like the Bent family, um, and they're sometimes recorded as full-blooded Indian. Sometimes they're recorded as mostly white. Uh, in many families, you can have two parents who are both labeled as full-blooded Indian, but then for whatever reason on the Dawes rules, it might say two of the children are half Indian, two of the children are full-blooded. So so even in families, there's like this crazy difference of sort of how people are labeled at this particular moment. But that moment in the 1890s is what Native people now are stuck with. End your story in 1940. I think it's pretty easy to understand why you began in 1600, but tell me how you chose that ending point. Well, really, just the purely practical reason is census records. So so until quite recently, the most um, recent census you could get was the 1941. So you could track people really up until about 1940. But the, the 1951 just opened like three days ago um, because the idea is you don't want that many living people because there's a lot of private information on the census. So they don't open it for, you know, 70 years with the, the notion that, you know, a lot of people will have passed on at that point. 
So that was one reason. I when I and when I talked to people, there were family decisions about passing as white, passing as native. You know how you were labeled in the Dawes Act, kind of what your family story was. Um, and they wanted to protect some of those family stories. So after 1940, there's still enough people living that I just didn't feel comfortable pushing past that moment. You consulted multiple archival collections from Winnipeg to Oklahoma City, New York to Los Angeles. Can you describe for us your research process and if you encountered any notable differences between working in Canada on the one hand and the U.S. on the other? Ah, uh, well, if you have the records of a big bureaucratic British company, that is great. And Canada, I mean, and it's just luck that the Hudson's Bay Company merged at various points, but there's, because I guess British bosses and stockholders were really suspicious. So they, you know, this is in the 19th century. So, you know, in 1820, if you own, if you were running a fort, you had to keep really detailed daily records of what everybody did. Now, not everyone does that. Of course, there are you know, bad bosses, but there's so much of a paper trail. So, you know, that was a wonderful set of sources. Um, the, the Canadian records, the census is really different. Um, the, the Catholic church keeps really excellent records that aren't as useful in the U S. Um, the Indian service in the U S those kinds of records vary and they don't start as early as the fur trade records do. So, um, there's less about the early 19th century in some ways. And what about the difference in working between Canada and the United States? Anything notable? When I did my own research on an earlier book, um, maybe it was because it was the difference between Canada and Texas particularly. But wow, did I find um, you know, the archives in Canada so much more user-friendly and well-kept. Is that anything that you oh, can generalize yes. about? Yeah. Okay. So, so, I mean, they, they were clean. I felt like they wanted me to be there. Um, they made all kinds of, you know, stuff available. This is silly, but there, there are a million working microfilm readers, which, you know, does, doesn't, doesn't happen everywhere. Um, so the fur trade history is something that Canada really cares about. And they're, you know, trying to make sense of it now, you know, how to think about fur trade history and be very proud of that but also how that feeds into the harder stories about um, reserves and boarding schools and all that. So, you know, it's, it's been interesting to work there. The, I don't know whether this was good or bad, but in Canada, because they were so shut down during the pandemic, they were so willing to send me huge amounts of stuff that they digitized themselves. So I'm super grateful for that too. What a Canadian thing to do, um, and how lucky <laughs> you are. Your book is deeply moving throughout, and you conclude on an especially poignant note, writing, quote, the building connections across bitter remnants of a colonial past continues to be hard, essential work, but that, and I love this line, quote, horses and children still heal wounds. What do you think is the state of that project today? I, uh, you know, we have a lot of hard history, but that history is shared. Um, human beings made, you know, all kinds of relationships with each other. There are these deep family shared stories, um, and we still need stuff from each other. So, you know, in the 19th century, people definitely needed and wanted horses you know there are other things that people want now but the only thing we all have in common is you know our families we everybody has a family so no matter how mad you are at someone or you know, what political rifts exist between you you know you you share 
being a daughter or a son or a mother or an aunt. So I think, you know, that's the key to moving ahead. Well, I've asked you a bunch of questions, but I always worry um, that uh, I might have left something on the sideline that the author would especially like to have discussed but wasn't asked about. Is there anything particular before we wrap up with one last question uh, that I haven't covered that you might like to get out there for your readers? Um, I get I get a lot of questions when I talk about this, about how, how I use ancestry.com. Um, but really that's about how I dig into other people's family records. So, um, you can leave your records open so people can see what I'm doing. And I get notes from people all the time. They're like, why are you digging into my grandma's history? And then I can, you know, tell them what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and who I am. And invariably people send me stuff. So I've gotten photographs, I've gotten family records. Um, in return, I can, you know, verify some of the research that they've done. So there's this weird connecting network that I've made through ancestry.com. And it's been, you know, in, incredibly meaningful to have people sort of email me out of the blue, but then, um, be happy about what I found about their families. Mm. Given the extraordinary work that went into this book and for readers, um, let me just emphasize how impressively and deeply researched it is. Maybe it's unfair to ask you what comes next. Um, but I suspect our listeners too can't help but wonder. So do you have the next book mapped out even at the fuzziest level? Yeah, mapped out might be a little grand for that, but um, <laughs> I I felt like I intended this book to be very upbeat in a weird way. But the end the end is sad, and there's there's a tragic quality to all this. But it is an end about you know how people survive in in the world, which is you know make families with each other. But, you know, kind of traveling alongside that is this much more violent history about killing Native people. And I, I think there's something deep at the core of American culture that really needs a careful rereading of Indian Wars and our notions of you know what a frontier means. So I'm you know looking at sort of really difficult moments in the 18th and 19th century where we have Indian wars and we have you know people who are kind of local militias taking real pleasure in killing native people. That's kind of what it meant to be an American white man was to have this experience. So there's, you know, a bunch of old history about that, but I think it's worth digging in and sort of thinking about that as such a core cultural piece for us. Sounds like a grim, but very important story. And hi, thanks so much. The book is Born of Lakes and Plains, Mixed Scent Peoples and the Making of the American West, published by Norton earlier this year. Thanks so much for the conversation, Anne. You're very welcome.